You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. A few weeks ago, I received in my email inbox a report from a think tank called Policy Exchange. The report was called Strong Suburbs, Enabling Streets to Control Their Own Development. And, and it piqued my interest, not only because of the name, uh, but because one of the people who sent it to me, a guy named Dr. Samuel Hughes, indicated that he read Strong Towns and, and it had an impact on, on the way they approached this report. Samuel Hughes is a senior fellow at Policy Exchange. He's also a research fellow at the University of Oxford, and he has agreed to come on the podcast and chat with us today. Uh, Dr. Hughes, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. It's great to be here. It's so nice to talk to you. And you are in London, where you live at least part of the time. You said you're having a nice weather day today. We always start with the weather here because... In Minnesota, we're very much weather focused. So uh, you're having a very nice day and a nice spring. We're having a beautiful spring day, yes. And we're just starting to believe that we might have a, a, an unlocked down summer. So people's mood is pretty good at the moment in this country. That's fantastic. I know you all have, as many have, but I know you've had many ups and downs in, in the UK and uh, kind of been on the forefront of a lot of the uh, the suffering and the agony. So it's good to hear. It's, it's yeah, very good it's been to hear. It's been a very hard time, of course. It has been. Well, I was scheduled to come over last year to give a talk, and I can't remember where, but it was in April, May. And of course, everything was canceled and it didn't work out. Uh, I'm hoping to rekindle that. That would be, this exchange is very interesting to me. Well, we'd love to host you. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Let me start by having you go back a little bit to the the interwar period, and then the transition after World War II. We talk here at Strong Towns about the U.S. development pattern, making this large shift, you know, the, exploiting this technology of the automobile, exploiting the fact that we had all this kind of free space, uh, this new way of creating economic growth and development. But we often, I think, myopically look at the U.K. and, and other parts of Europe as not experiencing that much change. And you did experience a lot of change. It was a little bit different than ours. Can you talk about how housing and the approach to housing changed in that period of time in the UK? Further back, we had this traditional pattern of development of cities. So outward growth of cities is constrained by the fact that people are barely reliant on walking everywhere or on very simple kinds of you know, horse and cars. So as population grows, cities do obviously gradually spread outwards but they also intensify. People use up more of their plot areas. They build up to sort of traditional regulatory limits, usually about five stories in this country. And that's how you get the, the dense, beautiful urban fabric of old English cities, like old American cities and old European cities. That starts to change in the 20th century. It starts to change in the 19th, 20th centuries because of the development of mechanized transport, ultimately the car. We do get a process kind of like yours of the beginning of a of school in our cities. Very, very rapid expansion, particularly in the 1930s, of what by our standards is very low-density suburbia. After the war, the situation changes a bit. So we get we, what we call planning system develops in this country. That shares with America something like zoning, so it makes it very difficult for existing suburban areas to intensify. Um, it, there are certain contexts where it can happen, but on the whole, if you live in a detached bungalow in the suburbs, you're not allowed to turn that into three row houses in the way that our ancestors would have done in the, in the earlier centuries. Um, what's different about our planning system is that it's tended to impose what we call green belts around our cities, which constrain further expansion. And that worked okay for a little while after the war, partly because most of our city's population were um, static or declining. But it's now caused this grave housing shortage, because uh, on the one hand, we can't grow our cities outwards. Uh, but on the other hand, we're not really able to intensify our existing urban areas. So, so I think We've ended up with a kind of cousin of the problems that you discuss in strong towns. We don't really have, as I understand in America, you're the authority, but as I understand, you've got this question of hugely expensive infrastructure that has accumulated over time to service these very, very large cities. 
we don't really have that in the same way, but we simply run out of places to put new houses. And so now housing is becoming prohibitively expensive in London and far out of the reach of most young people. And so that's the basic dilemma that we are confronted with. Can you talk a little bit about the new towns? Because I have to say, when I went to graduate school and I, I got a planning degree, this was idealized and the green belts were held up as this great uh, solution to a problem. And we, we basically, you know, put the UK up on a pedestal in terms of its planning and its approach to planning. That's interesting, all right. We very much did. It was like, this, this is the way that you do it if you're very thoughtful people. It's interesting that we've arrived at, at similar dilemmas. I think it would help people to understand new towns and how yeah. that relates to this whole thing. Yeah, the missing bit of the story. So yeah. the new towns, the idea in the planning, the post-war planning system was that we could stop intensification and we could stop sprawl. And the way we would deliver new houses would be by basically the government using tracts of land in the countryside and master planning these new cities or so-called new towns in these areas. I mean, quite a few were built and a few of them have been prosperous, um, but they've been quite challenged places in some ways. There's a few issues. So one is that in the long run, British people don't really recognize the legitimacy of the government seizing quantities of land for the purposes of house building. People recognize that this has to happen for the purpose of building railways or airports or whatever. But the idea that the state can sort of take away your home, knock it down, and just for the purpose of building homes for, for other people, this doesn't really have much of a place in our political traditions. So quite unpopular in that in that respect. The towns also tended to be affected the sort of dominant modernist urbanism and architecture of the period, which tended to be unpopular as time has gone on. And in many cases, they were also kind of in places where people didn't want to live that much. They were away from the main centers of economic activity. I mean, again, there are there are some exceptions to that. But new towns kind of, although I think the government still has the power to build new towns, the actual practice of doing so fell out of use in the 1970s, and there haven't been any more of them since then. So every so often the idea of building them again is resurrected, but I, there's never really been a political coalition behind it that makes it look like something that might actually might actually happen. The thing that people sometimes say about our system is we've, with only half of a half of a planning system. We've ended up with the part that's about restriction, about stopping <laughs> cities from growing or intensifying cities, but not the hard, the other part that was completely presupposed in our planning system, which was that there would also be this engine for building for building more houses in the new towns. And this is yeah, the reason why we're in such a difficult situation now. There was one paragraph in this report that really, really jumped out at me. And it's on page 23. We'll put a link to it in the show notes for this so people can go and, and, and get the copy of this report for themselves. This resonated with me because this is exactly the situation we experience here in the US. Uh, you say the housing crisis is often presented as a zero-sum conflict. More houses must be built to avoid rising homelessness, falling homeownership, and wider stagnation, but they can only be built by forcing them through against the will of local people, either by imposing high rise on our historic centers or by concentrating over our countryside with more suburban estates. It seems like this is what we face here in the US as well. This idea well, that everything must be built all at once into a finished state. And so once you essentially build out or reach you know, a built out point, you know, the only thing you have left to do is to build out literally like outward further, uh -huh. or you go back to places and stuff them full of high-rise buildings. You kind of pick the neighborhood that's going to be destroyed and that neighborhood becomes overwhelmed with, you know, a completely different style of development. Can you elaborate on this effect that you see uh, where you're at and, and, and kind of how it's manifested in the UK? Because when I look at this, this set of conditions here in the US, you wind up with, with basically two then very acute problems. It goes from being this chronic housing affordability, homelessness, stagnation problem to two acute problems. The one is we're just growing outward further. And that has this whole set of financial, environmental, social costs to it. The other one is the idea that we would essentially build our own NIMBY nation. We essentially seed our own anti-growth population 
by making the growth so jarring, so dislocating, so kind of unrecognizable that we actually build this large constituency against the growth that we need, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, people wonder why upzoning or why the planning system is unpopular when it's, you know, these poor planners in this country, they're just faced with this decision, where are we going to deal out the pain? Who's right. going to take yes. on this? <laughs> right. Who, who <laughs> suffers? Fault. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Now, there are a few things in the background here that you, you know, uh, put your finger on. One is that people have lost the idea that neighborhoods can gradually change in a positive way. Completely ahistorical. I mean, you look at old city of London or city of Westminster, in the center of the center of what is now London. You've got areas that consisted once, I mean, essentially, of one-story bungalows that would have used up like ten percent of their plot area or something. And then gradually, over eight centuries, they were slowly built up until they used up eighty-five percent of their plot area, and they were mostly five or six stories high. And everyone loves these places. But, uh, but that's become a very remote idea to us now. So, and people then perceive intensification necessarily as going to be a threat or it's going to be an attack or it's going to destroy the neighborhood that they live in, which is you know, not an unreasonable thing for people to think given the experience that they've had. The other issue in the background here is that we're very bad at sharing the benefits of development with existing communities. So like, you could often get these situations in London where on the suburban street, if any one resident got the right to turn their detached house into, say, three three row houses, they would immediately become, the second they got planning permission, they would become an asset millionaire, just because the hope value of what you could do with the plot would be worth so much. They would, be, they would make so much money, they would never have to work again. But obviously, all their neighbours would have to put up with two years of construction, they'd lose light and amenity, the existing character of the street would be uh, altered and uh, the unified character it might have at the moment will be changed. So they're all going to lose a certain amount and they gain nothing, absolutely nothing in consequence of this. So obviously they're all going to oppose it. Now we have a, our system is such that it's very sensitive to those kinds of objections. It is right and so. And so basically we end up in the strange, we're going to have kind of a collective action problem. Like it might be in the interest of every single person on the street to get the right to intensify, but it's also in everyone's interest to oppose that right for everyone else. And the question we were looking at in Strong Towns is how can you find a way out of that kind of collective action problem? How could you find a way to share the benefits of development with the streets so that you turn streets into supporters of development of a certain kind? Yeah. Let's talk about that. I do think that one of the things that I have struggled with and I've been criticized for kind of roundly by a lot of housing advocates is, okay, Chuck, the reason we have the system we have is because we can do it. Like we can deliver on it. How do you actually deliver on incremental development? How do you deliver on neighborhoods thickening up? And, you know, I have some ideas in my brain, but I've not seen anyone really tackle this with the thoroughness that, that you have. You actually have a model code in here for how you could go about, you know, instituting this. Let's talk in in broad generalities about what the plan that you're putting forward is, and then maybe we can get into some of the details of of how this might work. Broadly, can you describe what the proposal is here, or how, how people should think about it? The core idea is that you give residents on a street the right to vote by a qualified majority for basically permission to intensify their street within certain limits. So we've got a somewhat complicated system for this, but generally it would be to the sort of traditional European urban limits. You would be able to go up to three, four stories up to a terraced format, and they would agree a design code governing the outward appearance of these buildings, the degree of uniformity and the kind of vernacular styles that people want. People have different motives for voting in favor of this. In some cases, it will be because they want more space for relatives or for growing up children. In other cases, people are going to do it because they would like the increase in asset value that they're going to get by uh, voting for this. And because our housing shortage is so acute in London, that's going to be very great. So in many cases, they're going to get about a million pounds of asset value at the moment that they vote for this. Nobody's required to use the permissions that they create through this vote. We get so much incomprehension on this point. People can't believe that there's no coercive component to street votes. They think that surely you must have some way of forcing people to do this once you 
But no, no, we really, it's like, like our cities intensified for hundreds of years, people gain the right to do this, but if they wish to remain on the street, they can do so. And we've got certain permissions to protect people who live on the street from particularly invasive construction next door to them. Our thinking is, what you'd see after a vote like this, is that quite a few people would probably want to use the permissions right away because they obviously, uh, a super majority has voted for it. Others would probably take a generation to use those permissions, and you see the street transforming over that time um, from its current uh, low-density character to a kind of middle-density, or what we often call gentle-density character, over 10 or 20 years. And by doing that, you could increase the number of homes on the street you know, by several fold in many cases, which would help hugely with our, with our national housing shortage. So that's, that's the core idea. Be easiest if you maybe hone in on the the questions you have about it, rather than my going through every different uh, bit of our detailed proposals in a sort of lecture lecture format. Yeah, no, it's very good. I'm fascinated by the idea of let's start with the the non coercion part. There's two degrees of coercion that I think people will in the U.S. will hone in on. The one is the the government coming in and essentially mandating a certain level of development. And, and that's not part of this in any way. Uh-huh. I think the other thing, and this is maybe going to be a, a crime against the English language, but stick with me. I think the other coercion that people here would identify is basically the coercion of, of corporations or large developers coming in and overwhelming the neighborhood. Talk a little bit about how you've kind of bracketed off those two levels of, of, I think, what people would identify as coercions. Um, the first one just doesn't exist, right? That's right, yeah. So the government has no power to set, to make people hold the street boats, no power to uh, uh, implement these street plans itself. And then once the, once the street boat has been passed, the street itself has no power to force individual residents to use the permissions that they've collectively agreed on. The second kind is complicated most development in this country at the moment does happen through very big developers. There's complicated reason for this. Everything we hear is it's going to be unlikely that big developers can take much advantage of street boats. Um, and the reason for this is that development will happen on a very small scale. So you have basically individual plots being intensified. At most, you'll have very small scale plot assembly. So if, if four or five neighbors all want to intensify their plots at the same time, they might all sell them to a developer, and that developer might then put together a unified terrace on those plots. But generally, we're looking at uh, very, very kind of messy, fine-grained um, development, rather than the kind of big estate development or high-rise development that the major builders are used to in this company. We've talked to the major builders in this country, in this country about this, and they you know, basically all say to us, yeah, this is an interesting idea, it's kind of cool, but we couldn't really do this because our business model is just not set up for this kind of thing. We're, what we're good at is producing uniform house types on a large scale and really pushing our costs down doing that. But this kind of development would have to be done by sort of small builders or social enterprises uh, or uh, the, the kind of people who are good at working with communities on a very small scale and good at doing designs for individual messy plots in that way. The big builders, if the policy were different, they might find ways of, uh, of bullying people. But I think they're just not going to have much opportunity to much opportunity to do it here. This is going to end up having it's it's an invitation to a kind of uh, small enterprise form of building and to you know quite localist ways of uh, of solving these problems. I want to get into how this vote would go down, but let me follow this thread about developers and and. The, the mechanism in the marketplace of building this stuff. One of the pushbacks that I always get is that this kind of thing can't happen at scale. In other words, the problem we have with affordable housing is so huge. It's so big. Uh-huh. The problem we have with uh, homelessness and, 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 you know, just a housing shortage in general is so overwhelming that the only way we can handle this is with big developers taking big steps and doing big dramatic things. The numbers that you had in this report were pretty eye-popping in terms of the number of units you thought could be created in a year, kind of indefinitely. What makes you think that you can do this at that scale? What gives you confidence that this actually would produce a number of units that would be meaningful? 
Well, the best argument for this is really the historical precedent. I mean, we look at all the cities of the world. People look at this as like a crazy novel idea. But really, we're just going back to the way this has been done in all times and places up until the mid-20th century. All European cities intensified slowly and housed far more people per acre than or per hectare than uh, you know we do in suburban areas of this country, and certainly than we do in suburban areas in the United States. So the nice case that I was given the other day is that if we rebuilt London to the densities of Houseman's Paris, so the famous, beautiful 19th century parts of Paris, we could fit about 35 million people in London compared to about 8 million at the moment. An enormous space for this. The more complex bit for our purposes is how many streets will vote for this or how many streets will just will just not want anything to do with this because they're attached to the existing character streets. My guess is that the answer to that is that uptake will start fairly small and will then increase quite rapidly exponentially. So, so I think it's true that right at the start, people are going to look at this and they're going to think, this is a bit crazy. This is people we're risk averse. This is our street. These are our homes. This idea, you know, could this really work? Would it really happen? Or are we just going to let something wild happen? I think you'll get a small minority of pioneer streets who will who will do it. And the benefits will be so huge for them. And the possibility of it, you know, people will see this can actually happen, this actually works, this can be done to a high standard, um, this is hugely beneficial to existing residents, and then you'll start to see it increasing very rapidly. Um, and I suspect there'll be very, very large uptake within five or 10 years. Let me ask you a related question. You've answered this for me, but I, I want you to very specifically answer it for people out there listening who oh. are going to be skeptical. You talked about how these large in the US, we would just say the large corporate developers, they operate fluidly within our cities. They understand how the system works, the financing set up for them, the permit approval process is set up for them, uh, the subsidies networks are set up for them. Everything's kind of wired for them. And oftentimes we hear from the small developer, if they even exist in a neighborhood, a lot of times they've been they've been crowded out and they they don't exist. Yeah, yeah. But to the extent that they do exist, they will say it's very hard to compete because things are wired for, things are set up really nicely for these large developers and, and, and not scaled well to us. Are we talking about basically creating a, or, or bringing back a new profession? Like, are we going to try to build, do you think there will be more demand for people who are basic carpenters and, and people who are going to do work at a very small scale? Or are these people who exist now, like what would that provider market kind of need to happen and adapt over time to meet some of this demand? It will, I mean, it would be the best thing that's happened for small builders in this country for many decades if this goes through. I mean, I'm interested to hear what you say about uh, big developers in the United States, because it is strikingly similar in this country, roughly because the constraint on whether you build or not in this country is whether you can go through a very, very complex and elaborate planning process. That has huge overheads you need teams of lawyers and people who know how to operate this system. A small builder can't have those overheads, so they get outcompeted by the big builders. Even though people often feel, you know, if once they actually get the work, small builders may do it to a higher standard or may do something which has a more personal touch or is more responsive to the needs of local people. The thing with strong suburbs is that once you've passed a street vote, you don't need to go through a planning process. You need to respect the design code that the residents have laid down, but that's perfectly straightforward and transparent. There's just clear rules. You must do this. You must do this. The windows must be this shape or this size. You have to use this material. Provided you stick within those rules, you know, anyone can, uh, you, there's no further process you want to take. So it eliminates the overheads which benefit the large builders at a stroke. And then, of course, the kind of opportunities it creates, as I say, are these very, very small sites, um, which uh, where the economies of scale that the big builders enjoy on larger sites also don't come to the fore. I mean, the construction industry will have to change to take advantage of these opportunities. We still have small builders in this country, and they'll do very well, but more will have to enter the sector. And that will be a bit of a constraint on, on how quickly the policy gets implemented at first, because it will take you know, some years for the sector to build up its capacity to deal with these kinds of opportunities. But again, historical precedent suggests that can happen quite quickly. So the last time we had opportunities like this in the 1930s, supply expanded pretty swiftly to deal with the, uh, with the increase in demand that people have. 
let me ask you a theoretical question. Uh-huh. It does at times when I look at the housing shortages that we have and the way we go about solving them. And I think in the United States, California is kind of like a prime example of where we've leaned into the very large developer, yet there is this huge problem with affordability with number of units. I may be asking you to speculate a little bit. It seems like the large development model benefits in a very big way from constraints in the marketplace. The more constraints there are, the faster home prices go up relative to everything else. Uh The faster home prices go up, the more those costs of carrying six months, 12 months, 18 months of permitting process and unknowns, the, the more construction delays don't impact you because essentially the rising prices are bailing you out. They're providing this cushion where, you know, if you can't anticipate what happens two years from now, three years from now, five years from now, when you start down a path, it helps to have a rising tide, uh-huh. you know, that, that kind of fixes whatever problem you might not have been able to anticipate. It, so it's, it seemed to me like there's always this, when, when we insist that only large developers can deliver the product, it seems to me that we're a little bit at odds with their business model. If the goal of them providing the product is also to uh, in aggregate lower prices or slow down price growth or, you know, make things more affordable. Is this something that you've seen as well or or, or sensed as well? And it seems like this smaller, more incremental, more uh, a little bit everywhere approach would be immune to that kind of, and I won't go as far as to say market manipulation, because I don't think it's manipulation per se, but, you know, if there's only a handful of big players controlling the market, no one's going to get so far out in front of themselves that they're going to actually destroy the market, right? Yeah, no, it's a familiar problem in this country. So it's, uh, it's a big report, government report in this few years ago, the Nebin report. So the, basically the phenomenon is this. In a given area, planning permission will be given for one big housing estate for one big developer. And the developer then ends up with a kind of local monopoly. They're the only person adding new homes to the neighborhood. So it'd be crazy for the developer to build all those homes at once because that would flood the marketplace, push down prices, and you know, might even mean they make a loss on the whole development. So what they do is they build them out very slowly over a number of years. You know, people often notice this crazy feature of our system at the moment, which is that there are therefore hundreds of thousands of planning commissions in the system which just don't get used, or well, they do get used eventually, but it takes years and years for them to be used because the developers don't want to uh, flood local markets by using them. If you have small sites and you know, large numbers of small sites rather than one big site given to one developer, then you don't get those monopolies developing and you don't get that monopolistic behavior and uh, that artificial restriction of supply um, that follows from that. So I think, you know, Strong suburbs, we call it yeah, the build-out rate, the rate at which commissions get used. That would definitely go up if you move towards a policy like this. People also think, this is more conjectural, but it's quite plausible, also think that if you've only got one developer who has a monopoly on new builds in the area, their incentive to compete on quality is relatively weak. People just have to buy what they're building because that's the only way you can get a home in that location. Whereas if you have a bunch of small developers who've all got different sites and they're trying to attract customers to go to their site, then they have to really up their game on quality to uh, to attract people there. So it's, it may well be that it pushes up the quality of homes as well as the uh, speed at which they get built. Let's talk about how the vote would actually happen. I found this really fascinating. Can you walk us through the mechanism whereby people living on a street together would be able to you know, say, hey, we're, we're going to opt into this. What would happen to them? What would they gain and what protections would they get as they go through this process? Well, the process is a very simple one. I mean, the uh, a number of residents, we've got restrictions on how many it has to be, but a proportion of residents on the street have to get together and put a street plan proposal, a proposed street plan together. So they can write it all themselves. We're Will the government hopefully will support this process? So it will offer certainly earlier on the pilot schemes. It will offer grants to uh, help people to to do this. My guess is that over time you'll get a kind of ecosystem of social enterprises, charities, small businesses, 
that uh, support people in, in writing these and help them to put together a design code and put together plans. That then goes to a, a sort of street referendum um, and they have to get uh, about a 60% majority uh, of residents on the street to vote in favour. Slightly more complicated rules on um, quorums and things about that. If that goes through, the residents then receive planning commissions to um, use up more of their plots and have more floors um, and redesign buildings. So there, we put in a lot of constraints. There are two groups of people who need protection here, right? One group are people who live on the street but don't want to use the permissions. Um, so they they still get the value uplift. They still become you know much richer in asset terms, but they don't want to, say, sell their house and move out temporarily and then come back later. Our inspiration here, we looked at the old building regulations that British and European cities had in the past. They tended to work through, well, you had them in the United States as well, they tended to use light lanes running from plot boundaries. So these were, you, you can't build anything uh, over a, a sort of imaginary line that comes up from the boundary of the plot. And that protects people on that plot from overshadowing or particularly invasive overlooking. So we've got a number of protections like that for uh, individual residents who want to stay on the plot. They, they can't be sort of crowded in with houses being built right up to their boundary. The other people who need protection are people on neighbouring streets uh, or elsewhere in the larger neighbourhood. So neighbouring streets, again, we've got an elaborate system of light lanes and restrictions on how close we can build to property boundaries and various compensation provisions in place for any loss in asset value that they suffer. In the wider neighbourhood, we've got one big question, which obviously you'll face as well, is the question about cars and what do you do with the additional cars that people here, we can pursue a solution that might be different to the solutions you can pursue in America, I'm not sure. But in, in older British cities, it is possible for people to work, to, to travel in most places through public transport, and some people do. So we're generally requiring that the redeveloped plots, the redeveloped homes be car-free, or that they have a maximum of one car per uh, redeveloped plot. Um, so there's not going to be any increase in traffic pressure uh, on the neighborhood. Okay, you, you just lost the entire audience. They now think <laughs> right. they now think you're barbarics living it. At first, everyone thought you were very sophisticated in the center, right? and now you're saying you won't have more cars. Like, how how does this? <laughs> the alternative you can't have off. I mean, we allow people to have on plot parking if they want to. Right, right, right. Um, in London, that's probably not going to happen because people want the floor space more than they want the garage space. Right. It might be in the United States, you have a very different situation where uh, people want the garage space more than they want the additional floor well, space. I was making a joke and you got it. So we're, we're on the same page. <laughs> but I, I, I do think it's maybe worth pausing here and just pointing out that in order to make the neighborhood function better, the development is crowding out car storage. Is that is that like a fair like over time the evolution of the neighborhood basically replaces? Let me say this in an economic sense: replaces low value uses with higher value uses, and so that means it replaces storing vehicles with places for people and and other things. That's totally accurate. Yeah. So one of the major, I mean, the fundamental changes that's going to happen is people are going to turn like concreted front drives where they can't leave park their cars into new space for people to live in. And that, I mean, just as a matter of economics in London, that is viable. That is what the market wants if you let the market make that choice um, because people value that space much more as a space to live in than it is for, uh, as a space for, for cars. In London and in, to some extent in other British cities, you still have an extensive system of trains and buses. So many people live within walking distance of a train station and thereby within easy commuting distance of a city centre. If you don't have that, the situation gets more complicated and you know, it's, it's not so straightforward to have a car-free development and you have to look into things like um, underground parking or like it might be that, you know, it might be in some cases that actually um, living space isn't more valuable than parking space because people really need parking space. They, otherwise, they just can't travel from these locations to get to work. And in those cases, the kind of development that you'd get through having a street vote would probably be one that has something like underground or, or ground floor parking with um, homes above that. But yeah, that's happily, we're not in that situation in London um, right. for the most part. I'm picturing my neighbors and I 
sitting down and writing a plan together. Um, <laughs> and, and I hear you, you know, the idea that, that there would be, in a sense, a period of time where nonprofits and grant organizations and what have you would, would step in and, and kind of figure out how to do this. How do you think this would work? If I, if I live on a street with a bunch of other people, obviously this is just a small little area plan. We're going to be looking at everybody's house, talking about the future, what people would like to see, what we're willing to work on and compromise. How do you picture this actually working? I mean, would this be something where on Saturday morning we meet at the neighbor's house and we sit down at the table and talk about this stuff that, that seems very old fashioned to me. Well, I think there's gonna, there are going to be a lot of WhatsApp groups and a lot of extremely long email chains. Sure. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's not always going to be, I'm sure in many cases, it will be a very impressive and very inspiring process. I'm sure there will also be rows. I mean, it's not all going to be uh, going to be, you know, paradise when uh, people are making big decisions about their shared homes. You're probably going to have a smaller group of more motivated residents who put the plan together and then work to start persuading other residents on the street. Um, so it will be, it might be the, the Chuck Marones Sure. You know, get together on Saturday mornings and start to slave over the plan and put together a, a sort of outline of the plan or the, and then start to try and persuade other neighbors and bring them in and modify the plan in response to their concerns or questions or um, constraints. And then you end up with something that you start to think, yeah, no, we've got, we've got most of the street on side with this. I think it's time to now, to now, you know, put this to a vote. Um, and you inform the local government and the local government then holds the vote. If you lose, then you can't hold another vote for several years, according to our rules. Sure. Okay. So hopefully, hopefully the Chuck Marones win. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, what you're talking about is a volume situation where even if nine out of 10 lose, if one out of 10 win, you're creating some momentum in different places where it's most amenable to it. I mean, I, I feel like that's the key advantage here is you're actually kind of leaning into the Darwinian insights of, uh, you know, let, let's let places evolve when they're ready to evolve and let's not, you know, push them there if they're, if they're not there. Yeah, right? absolutely right. Yeah. And it will, you know, this will happen in the places, it will happen most in the places where most improvement can be realized through it. So it's built, has built into it that kind of efficiency. Um, the other thing that's maybe worth mentioning in this respect is uh, I think some of the streets where it will start will be those where you have quite a lot of private tenants at the moment. So we have the people who get who are enfranchised are residents, not landowners. So an absentee landowner can't vote on, on this. But absentee landowners are likely to be very enthusiastic about street votes because they'd see their assets increase greatly in value as it goes through. So we suspect what will happen in those cases is that the landlords will make sort of offers to their tenants. They'll say, look, if this goes through, I'll give you five years of rent back. And that really would be financially possible. I mean, that would be financially easy for the landlords, and that's Christmas come early for the tenants. So I suspect with streets like that, where you have uh, you don't have quite so much embedded attachment to the existing street as you do in streets where there's a um, solid ownership pattern, those, I think, might be the pioneer streets where it first starts, and then it will, once it's been proven to be a success and it's been proven to benefit everyone involved, it will start spreading elsewhere. Let me restate that to make sure that I understood. If we have a street with a lot of non-owners living there, people who are renting spaces and, and what have you, they would get a vote in the plan. That's right. But yeah. that, that, that owner of that building who lives somewhere else, they don't get a vote in that plan. That's what we proposed, yes. Yeah. The owner would get the increase in asset value if the right. plan goes through. But the owner has no power to make the plan go through directly themselves. The owner has to make it go through by sharing the benefits. By having some benefit to the people who are living there and are going to vote for, sure. And they will be able, I mean, the asset the increases in asset value will be great enough that they will be able to offer really amazing, make really amazing offers to their tenants. The tenants, just brilliant news. I mean, the brilliant news for the tenants if this you know, comes on the table. So I think it, it will be a win for both of them. Um, a very you know, easy win for both of them in those cases. So I think people, have, you know, at first when we started looking into this area, we were worried about the question of private tenants. Is there, you know, possibility for 
who who are we missing here? Are people going to be uh, uh, be private tenants? If we enfranchise the landowners, are they going to evict people? In fact, situations with uh, private tenants, these are particularly good ones for street votes, situations where it's a particularly conspicuous win-win and where it's likely to happen, especially swiftly. Here in the US, we would have objections from historic preservationists in some parts. It's fascinating to me to interact with people who are concerned about historic preservation here in the US and then go over to your country and walk the neighborhoods and experience you know, relatively new buildings for you that are older than my house, right? And I live in one of the oldest houses in, in the city here. What is your conversation about historic preservation in these neighborhoods? And what, what happens when you run into buildings that are 100 years old, uh, older? What is, the, what is the kind of cultural conversation you have around places like this as they change? Well, street boats, we put in a blanket rule that just exempts properties from before 1918. Um, okay. So they, they can't use street emissions. There might be scope in the future for looking at certain kinds of historically in-keeping additions to some of those properties, um, but we don't want to get into that territory at this stage. The advantage of this is that actually, like pre-1918 cities are built to pretty high densities anyway. So street votes, I mean, even if we allowed, even if we did uh, let street votes take place on uh, in 19th century parts of British cities, I think the uptake would be very low because they're already terraces, they already have high plot use, they're usually several stories high. They're also very prized, you know, tend to consider these to be very beautiful areas. So the uh, mere loss of historic fabric would also create a loss in asset value. So my guess is that the street boats actually wouldn't be that useful with historic areas anyway. So we thought it wasn't, it, we weren't missing a huge opportunity by exempting those areas. And the best thing to do was, was not to get into battles over um, conservation issues. Um, you most, yeah, I mean, Britain has the oldest building stock in the world, but even so, most of the ground area of our cities is from after this period, is from interwar, post-war periods, and that's all the more true in the United States. There's plenty of scope for street boats to work without worrying about uh, about the historic areas. Sure, I don't know how cities fund themselves in the UK. It's I'm kind of ignorant on this. Here in the US, cities have a a little bit of sales tax revenue they get, but a lot of the revenue that cities use comes from property taxes. They will tax the wealth that exists. Do you, do you have a similar system? Yeah, local governments are funded through a, a very strange form of property taxation or council tax system. Yeah, there are a lot of oddities to our system that works, but yes, that's, that is how it operates. Well, let me ask this question then, because one of the things that I have I've seen and struggled with is this kind of tension between the way we fund local governments, which again, like the big developer, when, when property values are going up, it makes the local government look good. It makes it easier to balance budgets. It, it, there's all kinds of like happy things that, that go on when property values are going up, even when people are priced out and having a difficult time and it stagnates the city. And part of the, I feel like the rhetorical tension between people who want to build more as a way to net lower price or, or, or have prices come down to be affordable, there's this tension because you know cities actually don't want prices to come down. There's a in 2008 when housing prices started to come down to levels that were more affordable, it put cities into bankruptcy. It it created all kinds of insolvency problems with local government. The, the theoretical question I want to ask you is, if your part of your plan requires people to want to do this because there's a large payout, but part of the, I think, hope of doing this plan is that that large payout goes away because prices would stabilize at something more responsive to a supply and demand uh, ratio. Can you talk just a little bit about that tension to me, there's no question of like in the very short term, this was going to have a positive effect and people would make all kinds of money and, and, and it would drive things in a really positive way. Isn't the solution for us <laughs> to reach a point where supply and demand equilibrates at a lower market price? And that would have a bunch of other cascading consequences for 
our financialized market, your financialized market, which is very real estate centric like ours is. We had all kinds of problems with mortgage-backed securities in 2008. And, and these things, you know, all of a sudden when prices stopped going up, wow. banks started to implode and other things went bad. Would succeeding actually end up to be kind of a failure in a broader, in a, in a broader market sense? Uh-huh. And how does that undermine your effort a little bit? That's an interesting question. I mean, there's a, it's very complex. So when it comes to, low, to government tax, local government taxation or municipal taxation, I think we'd be okay in this country. I mean, our local taxes, they were frozen to property values in the early 1990s, and we've never reassessed um, where they should be since then. I think most people think this, agree this is anomalous. So it does mean that there are areas that were low value then and are now high value that still have low property taxation in the country, or they pay low council tax. But it's, it's the result of curious political processes that just left this fossilized in place. So I think local governments would gain from street votes because the uh, number of properties would increase as people add properties on the plots. And then you'd have several properties paying council tax rather than just the one existing property. Um, and I don't think even if it brought property prices down, it's just an oddity of the way our tax system is structured would mean that that didn't bring down the uh, returns to local government. We've also got some provisions, this is a bit of an aside, but we do also have some provisions that uh, some of the value uplift will be taken in taxation and then returned to local governments to fund increases in local services or further infrastructure that they need to pay for if there's an increase in population following street votes. That's the, uh, you know, is this going to cause chaos for local governments? Is this going to undermine their budgets? I think there we can be fairly confident it's not going to do that just because of the nature of our setup in Britain. Although if you were to transfer this to America, you might have to, you know, rethink that a bit. Um, the question about reducing house prices, I mean, any solution to the housing crisis is ultimately, if it's a genuine solution, it's going to ultimately result in lower house prices. And that does have, you know, could have other negative effects. That's true. I mean, so it, some people who have borrowed money against the value of their houses could be left in quite financially precarious positions, for instance. And I think you know, as those problems emerge, it would be important for the government to be very alert to them and maybe to look into, for instance, setting up a fund to support people in those positions. One of the advantages of street votes is that because it would start quite slowly, you know, the uptake is going to begin at a fairly modest level and then build up over a number of years, it would give people a chance to reassess their financial positions um, and it wouldn't create the kind of steep fall in property values that you see with, with some of the more brutal solutions to the, uh, to the housing shortage. So I think it's it's probably as gentle a solution as is available. You are right. If if we really succeed and we really manage to, to cause a cooling of the housing market in this country, there will be some knock-on complications to that. And you know, I would anyone would be disingenuous if they tell you that that's not the case. And all we can do is be very alert to those and try to deal with them as they as they come up. What is the likelihood that this moves beyond a report? What are the odds of this actually becoming a law, becoming something that could happen in, in the UK? Well, it's looking quite promising. I mean, the, the current government is very concerned about the housing shortage, and they're trying very hard to uh, rectify it. And they also, they do have, they're very interested in local control. Um, I mean, localism has been a theme in uh, this government and the preceding government policies for about 10 years now. So, so street votes, kind of appeals to the mononintuitive level. Um, they're currently preparing a, some very major reforms to our what we call our planning system, um, public, well, being written at the moment and uh, um, likely to come out in the later part of this year. So we're hoping that street votes will be included in that. Um, the Secretary of State, who's the, the minister who's responsible for these reforms, gave us a, a very supportive statement, which we included in the report. Um, and we know he's He's interested, the department's interested, they're reading this at the moment. Yeah, there's a lot of curiosity. And the report got very wide support and support from all political parties, from you know, traditional architects and from modernist architects, from um, groups that are normally expected to be anti-development and groups that are normally expected to be pro-development. It's kind of turned out to be an idea people can unite behind. You know, yeah, we're Cautiously optimistic. I think there are there are decent odds this might actually happen in the in the next few years in this country. 
Dr. Samuel Hughes with the Policy Exchange and Oxford University or University of Oxford. If people wanted to find out more about you, your work, this report, what would be the best place to do that? Well, the report is available on our website. So if you type Strong Suburbs Policy Exchange into Google, it will come up pretty swiftly. Otherwise, I'd recommend following my account on Twitter, where uh, I produce little bits and pieces of material related. What is what is that Twitter handle? Uh, SCP, and then that little funny line, and then Hughes. Well, Samuel, it's so nice to talk to you. Thank you for sending me this report. Thanks for following up with me, and I'm 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 so grateful we could make this international connection happen. It's wonderful to chat and to learn from you. Well, we are, you know, dwarfs standing on your the shoulders of the giant that is Chuck Marone. <laughs> even even down to the title of our report that was obviously famously <laughs> stolen from. Uh, I'm I'm honored. Board. Yeah, <laughs> but we're very grateful for the work you've done. Obviously, thank you. That's very kind. It means a lot to me. No strong suburbs. It's a beautiful concept and a beautiful idea. And let's. Let's keep in touch. And I would like to know if this moves ahead and, and what the reaction is. And hopefully a couple of years from now, we can even chat about successful neighborhood plans and what those look like and, and, and things are happening. This, this would be Absolutely. wonderful. Yes, yeah. Okay. Thanks so much. You take care, Samuel. Thank you very much indeed. It's been great to talk. We'll talk soon. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.